Join me on my journey as I explore wealth in all areas of life. I'm your host, Mindy Kinnis, and this is The Lucrative Society. On today's episode of The Lucrative Society, I have a very special guest. This person is a number one New York Times bestseller. And I will say this, when I first met him, my husband, Sean, had said, you won't believe who I just hung out with. We were all supposed to be at a conference and we had not been at the conference. We were hanging out elsewhere outside. And he's like, I just spent hours talking to this guy. You're going to love him. Now, I'm skeptical, of course, because I'm an introvert. I don't love small talk. I like to connect on real deep things. And I was like, okay, Sean, who is this? He said, it's Tucker Max. Do you know him? And I said, Tucker Max is an asshole. I have a book called uh, Assholes Finish First. It's a reasonable expectation. (laughs) Right. My point being, I did love meeting this person. And Tucker, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I remember that. It was you, me, Sean, and Cameron Harold. Yeah. <laughs> and we we were talking about Harvey McKay. I remember I remember exactly <laughs> what I said. And you that's when you like looked at me and started laughing. You're like, all right, I like this guy. I remember it very clearly. I, I do as well. I do as well. And I have to say that it was a great lesson for me on having preconceived notions of people, you know, who are in the media or on social media or just have some kind of presence online and then meeting you in real life. And I was like, okay, cool. So to get started, one of the first things that I want to talk about, because on this show, I really focus on looking at money and happiness. So like this Mm -hmm. idea of wealth, what is your definition of wealth? So let me answer that a little bit roundabout. So uh, the, um, the only two things I think that matter in life are the relationships you have with the people you love and the things you do that matter to them. And that's pretty much it. So I would define like a happy, content, rich lifestyle as a lifestyle where you're spending most of your time with the people you love and doing things that matter to them. I wouldn't, I would define wealth a little bit differently. Um, uh, wealth. And cause again, it depends how you, uh, there's so many ways to look at it. Wealth has, just a, very, asked, right, it has a very specific <laughs> meaning to me. Right. So uh, rich means you have a lot of material resources, right? Plenty for you. To me, wealth is, um, in its conventional meaning, is you have enough material resources for you and for your family for a long time to come, generations, right? Um, now, I, I, I don't argue with people who are saying, you know, true wealth is love or whatever. I get that. But I think that's, I just, I feel like that's a, not a bastardization. It, it's, a, it's a stretch of the word, which I'm cool with and I totally get and I say it all the time. But in the real sense of the definition of wealth, that's the way I see it, right? Like, like riches, like riches, like you, you, you know, you got some money and, and you're doing okay. Wealth is you don't think about money because you have so much. I, I like that definition a lot. And I have to tell you, for those of you listening that are not seeing what I'm seeing right now, Tucker has this extensive library behind him. So to me, like that's wealth to me, is <laughs> just having resources like that. So awesome. So tell me a little bit about your 
wealth evolution? Like, did you grow up with money? Did you not grow up with money? And kind of take us through your journey to where you are today. Yeah, I had a really weird childhood. Um, my So on my mom's side, uh, my, my family is like, old. we're about as uh, aristocratic as Americans get. So like my grandfather is John C. Floyd, the like the third and his whatever three or fourth or fifth generation great grandfather was William C. Floyd, who signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Wow. And so like, you know, my, my answer in the like the Daughters of Liberty and shit, like they're like friends with, you know, whatever, uh, William Taft's kids and bullshit like that, like all that nonsense. Uh, so that's my mom's side of the family. But by the time I came around, uh, like it's seriously like uh, Cassius Clay was like that, the, that's the line. So Henry Clay, the, the famous senator, his cousin was Cassius Clay, who was like a very famous abolitionist. And so like Muhammad Ali was named Cassius Clay. It's so funny. Muhammad Ali changed, when he joined the Nation of Islam, he changed his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. And he said he did that because he didn't want to uh, have his slave, uh, his slave name anymore. But the true story is, I don't know if, if, if he knew this or not, but uh, the true story, the reason his father and his grandfather had the name Cassius Clay is because my, whatever, great, great, great grandfather si uh, released his slaves long before, uh, freed his slaves long before uh, the Civil War. And they all took the name Cassius Clay as a, uh, as a way to respect their, um, uh, the man who granted them their freedom, right? Wow. I know, exactly, which is a better story. Uh, but I get why Ali changed his name in the times in the sixties. I, I, I get it. It makes sense. But by the time it got to me, you know, Cassius Clay between the, the, the Clay family owned most of Kentucky. There's like Clay County, you know, it's like that, that was the, the, and the Floyd family. Those are two of the major families in, in, in the, uh, in Kentucky and the Floyd family was as old as it gets. By the time it got to me, there was no money left. Like, uh, my grandparents were, okay like they were still kind of who's who they live like in the social register who's who my aunts and uncles and and, and mom uh, that that generation were all shitbirds all of them uh and it's like it's just a pretty classic story of like uh each generation gets less and less right and then now what's funny is the my generation me and my cousins we're all doing great like i'm the big one but there's a bunch of us that are doing really cool stuff because we had no money we had no access to any of that stuff but we had all the like we grew up in the the lore of it but we didn't, we were all not poor, but definitely middle-class. But then weirdly on my dad's side. So my dad was told, so we, we always knew uh, he was, uh, his, his great grandparents were immigrants, right? So like uh, they were Hungarian, you know, off the Ellis Island, et cetera, told they were, we were told they were Catholic. My grandfather and, and father were raised Catholic. Turns out they were Ashkenazi Jew. And they were running wow. from, yeah, I know, running from, and, uh, they were running from one of the minor persecutions before the big one uh, in the, whatever, the teens or something, um, came to America, you know, whatever, changed their names, went to LA, just decided they were Catholics and never told anyone, not my grandfather wow. or my father. The reason we know this is because I took 23 and me and wow. I was 25% Ashkenazi Jew. And I was like, dad, do you know you're 50% Jew? He's like, what are you talking about? He did the test. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> Uh, well, so it turns out uh, we were Jews. That's and, amazing. Uh, exactly. And, and so now my dad, my, my dad's parents were, they both worked at, my dad, my granddad flew for the Flying Tigers, like in the Pacific, in the war, and then helped start 
like the company that became Flying Tigers at FedEx eventually bought. It was International Freight. I flew for them and stuff. And then my grandmother uh, ran the commissary at Warner Brothers for like 40 years. And so they, they were pretty well off, but middle class, you know, L.A. Uh, back when the, there was a middle class in L.A. before it was now Hollywood. Uh, and, and then my dad grew up and all that. And he became a, an entrepreneur and made a lot of money. Um, it started a bunch of restaurants in South Florida. Did very, very well. Hasn't really kept a lot of it, but <laughs> different question. And so, like, I, I was that weird kid who, like, grew up kind of poor, like lower middle class. But my mom's side, like, were snooty and, like, sons and daughters of liberty and thought they were important but had no money. My dad's side were, like, literally lying about their heritage but had a bunch of money and had, like, kind of uh, uh, worked through all that. So so I saw – but my dad was, like, actually running in really high-end circles. You're a high-end restaurateur. Like, his friends, you know, all had jets and stuff, right? And so, like, I saw a lot of money on my dad's side. I, I, my parents were divorced when I was little. So like I would visit my dad and he was around a lot of money and a lot of rich people, but I wasn't really part of that world, but I saw it. And then I lived with my mom and we didn't have a whole lot of money. And like, I didn't have like all my nice stuff my dad bought for me. Like the reason I had nice stuff at all, any clothes at all that were nice is my dad bought them. Uh, but like they had like all of the, the non-monetary benefits of privilege, right? I mean, there's a million going to cotillion and all the, all the nonsense stuff that rich people do. Uh, and so like, uh, I had a very unusual childhood in that, like I'd be literally deer hunting for food one weekend and then like on a private jet the next weekend. But as a kid, it's super weird. That's like not that like Joe Rogan does that now. Like that's normal. But like when you're a kid in the eighties, that's a super unusual thing. Yeah. Did you find yourself gravitating toward one when you were a child gravitating oh. toward one or the other or just that's how I couldn't stand. Was. I couldn't stand either world. Honestly, Got it. my dad's world was completely fake. I mean, that was like the go, go eighties and nineties, you know, like the media. I mean, he lived in Miami. Right. So like, it was basically Scarface without the drugs or the Colombians or the Cubans. Right. It was like, cause he lived in Boca which is funny because he didn't think he was Jew and he lived with all the Jews, right? So it's like, come on, dad. It's like, oh, I wonder why I always felt good around my, these are my people. It's like, yeah, no shit. So, um, so yeah, like, you know, every, every Jew I know has like a grandparent in Boca, right? Like it's a joke. They, and they all know my, every Jew I've ever met knows my restaurants, be, be it my dad, my family's restaurants, because they've all, they all family in Boca. It's crazy. Wow. So no, I couldn't stand that world. It was so fake. Not not the Jewish people, but like the the rich people, rich snobby people that my dad always hung out with, right? Totally fake. And then I couldn't stand my mom's side because I'm like, you know, my mom had like a painting in her uh, in our house that the czar, the la like czar Nicholas, the last czar of Russia, gave to um, Cassius Clay, our great great grandfather, whatever. And she was like, always so proud of it. I'm like, mom, you never even met that dude. Like, he's like, he was dead b before your, your parents were even married. He was dead. Like, like you don't know him. You know, like, or my, my grandmother met him when she was a girl. Like, and then he died. I'm like, you didn't do any of this. Like, what are you proud of? You know, like, they were like, it's like they had all this pride and all this shit that none of them did, you know, or had anything to do with. And then it's like, you look at their lives and it's like, you guys are just pathetic and you don't do anything and you don't like, like, 
And so I couldn't stand, like I had the accomplishment on one side, but it was all bullshit. Like, uh, like it was all arrogance it was all narcissism. Uh, and then the other side was all the pride with none of the accomplishment. And I, no, I couldn't stand either line. Honestly, I didn't feel like I fit in either place. Well, you know what, that, that makes sense. Just knowing you today in that you don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> You're like, you know, let's just focus on this shit that's important and really nothing else. Mm-hmm. And you've accomplished a lot. You've done a lot of things. You've created a lot of really, really interesting things. So can you bring us kind of up to speed today and just talk a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I wrote a bunch of bestsellers and I did all that stuff and that was cool. And then yeah, I made enough money. I didn't really have to do anything. I kind of, I wrote books about drinking, hooking up in your twenties. And then I was in like my thirties and I was like, I don't want to write about this anymore. It's just not interesting to me. And so I retired from it and I kind of didn't do much for about three, four years. I mean, for me, I invested in a bunch of companies and I got in some big ones like Slack and a few others um, and, and did pretty well. Deep Eddie Vodka and a few others that, that, that had big exits. Uh, Teachable, which just exited for a lot of money. But um, so that was pretty cool. And I wrote a few things, but I, I just didn't, didn't do much, right? In terms of like a dedicated thing. And then about five, five six years ago, uh, this woman at an entrepreneur dinner kind of called me out because she's like, how do I write a book? Like I, yeah, everyone's asking me to write a book and I... I I I tried it and it's just awful and I have a family and I have a company and I just can't, I can't weed through all the nonsense to figure this out. Right. So how do I get a book out of me? And I, and of course I gave her this total elitist snobby writer answer, which is like, yeah, you have to open a vein on the keyboard. And yeah, basically I just told you you had to be a writer. And she like listened to me politely for a few minutes and then rolled her eyes. was like, Tucker, are you an entrepreneur? Cause this is an entrepreneur dinner. And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. She's like, no, I don't think you are. Because a real entrepreneur would help me solve my problem and not lecture me about hard work. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> she was totally right. She was 100% right. It was like one of those gut punches where like, like someone's so right that like, I, I can't even make a bad argument to argue with her. I just have to eat it. And then I got obsessed with the idea, like, how do I get a book out of her without her having to learn how to be a writer? And so I, like, it took me about two months, but I realized, oh, this is a multi-thousand-year-old solved problem. Like scribes have existed for thousands of years. Like Socrates never wrote anything down. Plato wrote all of it down. And Marco Polo didn't write anything down. His cellmate did. And go down the list, right? And so I I got in a whiteboard and I wrote down every step and what does it take to write a book? And I realized, ah, it only takes like maybe 40% of this stuff is necessary to have the the, the author there, which is an important 40%. But like there's a ton of work where I don't need her. And so uh, basically I, I figured out, okay, how do I get, you know, her positioning out of her, her outline? And I was like, okay, I can just interview her. And it probably only a few hours on the phone. It was a little more than I thought, maybe about 15, 10 to 15 hours. I thought I could do it in three. Three is not possible. Uh, yeah. So anyone tells you, you can write a book in a weekend or dictate a book in 90 minutes. They're full of shit. It's going to be terrible. 10 to 15 is the bare minimum. And so I got it. I got like, I interviewed her, got stuff. Just try, I'm like, oh, this is right here. And I just went through and cleaned it all up. The big thing that she wanted was couldn't be ghostwritten, right? So it's not like, I'm not going to go research her field. She was in like pop-up retail or something. I don't care. I'm not going to learn about this. It's got to come out. It's got to be her ideas and her words and her voice. And so uh, we made it work. This is how bad of an entrepreneur I am. We made it work. It was a great book. She loved it. And she's like, she's like, uh, what, what do I tell people? Because I, I quoted her just enough money to make it worth my while. Because for me, it was like, pride like I have to do this 
but she's like, what do I tell people you charge? And I'm like, charge for what? <laughs> she's like, for, to do the same service. I'm like, no, why would I do that again? No, I figured it out. I don't want to do this more. And she's like, okay, I'll tell people 15 grand <laughs> or whatever. And like, uh, she starts sending people to me and I'm like, ugh. And so I had a buddy of mine, Zach um, Obrant, who is now my co-founder, but he, uh, uh, he was doing some other work for me. I'm like, look, man, these people keep annoying me and writing me checks to write books for them. I don't want to do this. Okay, do you want to do this? He's like, yeah, of course. And so I showed him my process. He's like, oh, he's a smart dude. He was a decent writer. He's like, oh, I could totally do this. And so he saw, we just split the money. He started doing the work. And then after like three months, we'd done like a quarter million dollars in business. He's like, dude, we kind of have a company here now. We need to run this. And I'm like, yeah, I think you might be right. <laughs> might be right. <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was uh, 14, August of 2014, or the fall of 2014, really. And we've done about 40 million in sales since. And we're now like 51 full-time people and like 170 freelance. And we've done, we're coming up on 2,000 books and some really big ones like David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me, and Tiffany Haddish's book, Last Black Unicorn. Nassim Taleb's got a book coming out in three weeks. We did that one. Uh, you know, David Bach, like all these people, you know, like we've done a bunch of big ones now. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love hearing the backstory of that too, where you're like, what? This is a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so dumb. I like it's so funny. It, it, the frustrating thing is like, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh God, I could have done this five years ago. What am I doing? This is so easy. And like now it turns out this is hard to scale. Like it's easy to do for a person, right? Because I know how to write books. But writing, like creating the process of writing books at scale with lots of different people. And then, oh dude, this was so hard. Like I, I had to step aside as CEO about a year and a half in and we had to like get a real CEO. And thank God, that's the reason we're at 40 plus million in sales. It's because of him, not me. Like I had a great product and a great idea and I'm good at a lot of things, but the business of building a business is a totally different skill set from anything else. And it, you are arrogant and foolish if you think you can learn that quickly and easily. Um, it is painful and difficult. Uh, yeah, I went through that painful and difficult process uh, myself. So definitely agree with you on that. Talk mm -hmm. to me about the balance between your business entrepreneurial brain and the writer artist brain. I myself have this struggle. I, I went and did my MFA in writing. Like that's always how I perceive myself as a writer. And yet the bit, I, I have a, a challenge integrating those. Yeah. So um, I have learned, well, I, I do have a pretty good business model. What I've learned to do though, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, uh, showing up your weaknesses and balance. And I, I, I'll tell you what, that makes sense if you're a pocket knife, right? If you need to have a lot of different tools, right? Or a multi-tool, like my son just bought his first multi-tool. He's so excited about it. It has like 20 things in it. And like, if you're a multi-tool, then you need to have, like each thing needs to work and needs to be yeah. good. But what I realized when we hired JT, uh, he's the CEO. Like I thought I was close to being a good enough CEO. And then about three months or six, definitely six months after being around an actual great CEO, I was like, not only was I not close, I couldn't even conceive of what it looked like to be great. Like uh -huh. I was so far away that like, I'll never forget, the, the, the time reminds me, it's like when I was in high school and I thought I was a really good basketball player and then I played against a guy in the NBA and I was like, you're not human. Like, this is a whole different, I can't even conceive of how good you are. Yeah. Like, like, it's not even, I'm like, 
I thought I could maybe play in the league. I don't even think I can hold a towel for a dude in the league. And he's like, eh, no, you can't. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of the same thing. It was like, okay, maybe I could be that good, but that's years of practice and work at things that I am not good at and don't like. And so what I've really learned how to do recently, uh, and it's why our company has really started to go parabolic, um, is I, I've stopped trying to do the things I'm bad at. And I've found people who are really good at those things and who I trust. And I let those people do those things for me. And then I focus, Dan Sullivan calls it unique ability, right? And I'm a big believer in this um, now. Now, it took me years. <laughs> but, um, and so like what we do right now, what I do in my company, I do like two things, three things. That's it. Nice. But the three things I do, I am, I am absolutely the best in the world at least one. And I'm top 0.001% in the other two. And so like JT's created an engine around me that just like, or a, I'm the engine. He's created a whole car around me for those things. And then we have other things too, where we got people who have great abilities and then okay, you, you create the car around that person, let them be the engine, right? And so I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is they're like, how do I become well-rounded? You can, I'm not saying don't be well-rounded. If you want to, go do it. If, you're, if that's not your thing, you might be better off doubling down on your strengths and just sub, subbing out, subcontracting out your weaknesses, which is what I've done. Such a great reminder about unique ability and just really focusing in on those one or few things. I, I constantly need to be reminded of that myself because I'm interested in everything. So one of the frameworks that I use in this podcast to get to know you a little bit better is an acronym called HERB. I'll walk you through each of the steps. H stands for habits. What are some of the habits that you employ on a daily or weekly basis that just help you not in business only, but really just to be the man that you are. Yeah. I don't look at business and life as separate. They're all the same to me. Like they're literally, there's no difference. Like I don't believe work is a thing I do, but it's all my life. Um, so yeah, like the only person I know who separates work and life is Batman and I'm not Batman. <laughs> right? So, um, uh, and he don't even do it that effectively, by the way, I don't try to imitate his life. He's all lonely. <laughs> no, fuck that man. Um, all right. So what are the habits? Well, uh, I go to bed early. So what time is early for you. Like nine o'clock, 10 yeah. the latest uh, okay. I'm asleep. Now the reason is my wife, because we got three little kids and another one's probably on the way soon. And, and the reason is because, um, she wakes up our old or youngest is a year old. She wakes up with the kids if they need to wake up breastfeed or whatever. Right. Cause what do I have to add to a breastfeeding situation? Nothing. But then like I get up uh, at six or whatever with the kid and then she gets to sleep in as long as she wants. Right. So that way we kind of, we both get enough sleep. It's not optimal, but it's better than both of us being awake and both of it, you know, like it's terrible. So then like if I'm in bed at nine, 10 at the latest, I'm up at six, that's eight hours of sleep. Like I'm all, I'm pretty, I'm as militant as I can be about getting sleep is the foundation of all health. Number one, most important thing. Uh, then close second is nutrition. It's how you eat. So uh, it's really simple. Like um, I just I do my very best to avoid all uh, sh refined sugars, uh, carbohydrates, uh, meaning like starchy carbs, like potatoes and bread and rice um, and seed oils, right? So like uh, canola, all that nonsense. Yeah. Those three things are poison 
uh, to humans. I'm not like uh, uh, militant about them. I'm like, we don't really have this stuff in the house. If we go out and like, you know, there's amazing bread, I'm going to have some, I'm not a weirdo about it, but um, I'm pretty good about that stuff. And then the, the third big thing is exercise. Um, uh, like, I don't do a whole lot now other than MMA and jujitsu, right? Like I fight, which is pretty intense. Like if you're doing that, you don't need to do a whole lot more. I do, um, uh, I used to do uh, Olympic and free lifting and I love it. It's great, but you get older, it's pretty rough on, on joints. Um, so I do this thing called X3 now, which is sort of like, like bands, you know, everyone knows what bands are. It just has a system that connects a bar to the bands. So you're doing squats and all this sort of stuff with a, with a bar, but using bands as resistance. It, it, you probably you've seen this if you ever watch ESPN. Like a lot of sports teams use this stuff. Same thing. So like uh, it's just easier on the joints is all. So that's pretty. And I do that maybe three times a week at most for like twenty minutes. That and then I go jujitsu three times a week for an hour. And you also are running around after three children, so <laughs> I guarantee yeah, that. But add not, I don't get the whole idea that chil- children are work. Yeah, but they're not. Like I don't. The idea of running around chasing them is not like. We, we have a very different parenting style than most, we're, we're, like what people would call free range parenting, you know, like we have like, we have very clear and distinct boundaries and we hold those firm. But within those boundaries, I'm not on top of my kids trying to helicopter them or whatever, man. Like, it's so funny. People come over to our house and they'll like see our kids like swinging from something or climbing on we have this huge <laughs> kitchen island and they'll be climbing on it, swinging off their little chair and they will freak out <gasps> and they'll run at the kid. And I'll say, stop, back up. She's fine. She knows exactly what she's doing. You're the one who has the problem, not her, right? Notice that she's not laying on the ground. If she lays on the ground crying with blood coming out of her head, feel free no to rush problem. towards her and help, right? Until that moment comes, leave her alone you know or if you see her waving a knife around or something okay i got you i'm with you right um but no we let them like you know they pick, pick out their own clothes they whatever now, now again at the same time the the thing with that it's not just free-for-all right because it was free-for-all it'd be bedlam in the house right. was, we would live in a guard pigsty <laughs> so we have very clear systems you know like okay like in the morning when they wake up before they get to play I, we let them watch ipad uh, or play you know, video games in the morning. So before they do, they got to, you know, eat their breakfast. They have to brush their teeth. They have to be ready for school and the room has to be clean. Right. So they, it's easy. We don't have to get on them about chores because they want to, they want to watch Coco Melon so much that like they get all their shit done. It's real simple. Like you just set up simple systems for kids. And uh, I'm not saying that takes care of all the problems. It doesn't, of course, it just makes, you don't have to be hectic and hairy with kids. Now, We've got a one-year-old who's got three teeth coming in. Okay, it's going to be hellish. He's going to be screaming. He's upset. He's in pain. But that's like a short window of time. For the most part, it's really not that hectic or hairy. Well, I like that too because that encourages the kids to be able to trust themselves and then to mm-hmm. learn what, what's going to work or what's going to maybe cause them some pain. So I think oh, yeah. that that is awesome. So moving from the H to the E, E stands for environment. And clearly I can see that you bring lots of books into your environment, but what else do you allow in or not allow into your environment? Yeah, this is another thing I've really tuned into recently. I like, I'm, I'm big on cleanliness. No, I'm not like a weirdo fastidious, like taking a Q-tip to the corners, <laughs> but like, I like things to be neat and in order. You can tell my library, it's like, yeah. it's, it, it's neat and in order, right? I do like to have things kind of 
if I have a lot of open loops, it keeps, uh, I, I find myself distracted and unable to focus, right? Which is pretty common for a creative. So I make sure all those open loops are closed. And then also like, you know, I, I, listen, I have money so I can do this, but I still, I live in a place where like we back up to a huge green belt, right? So we got woods behind us okay. and we're actually going to buy a ranch soon, but, but even now, and then we have a full guest house so we can have guests all the time and they're not in our fucking hair, right? They're like, they're over in their own house and That's they can the stay for, do it. <laughs> right, they can stay for three or four days and it's no problem. And we, we love having them and it's great. We have a pool. Right. So that's another reason we don't have to chase our kids around a lot is because they can go swim. Right. They can, uh, you know, we'll be out there with them. But for the most part, they're like little fish. We just let them get, get at it. Right. So so I, I make sure and create. And even when I didn't have this house, the place I lived had all the things around it that I wanted. Right. So it, we made a very conscious sort of thing. What are the my house has a huge wine cellar. We're like we don't drink much, but we're huge. like when we drink, it's wine. We're big wine people. So it's like uh, we just figured out what are the things that we really care about. And then we created a life where those are those things, you know, like what those things are around us. Those are the stuff around us. You know? Awesome. So moving to the R and I feel like you and I could talk about this one for the next 10 hours. So I'm going to maybe ask you for like two or three or four, but R stands for resources. Resources can be books, courses, programs, mentors, whatever else you want to mention. But what are some of the resources that have influenced you a great deal and that you would recommend it to others. And you're right. There's so much. There's so it really, much it, it depends. It depends on the goal. It just a hundred percent depends on the goal. Right. Well, let's um, say like at least one business ish, one personal ish. We can use MDMA as a resource. Okay. Well, if we're talking about like medicines, <laughs> then that's it. That's, that's the thing. That's a hundred percent the thing. Yes. The, okay. If you want a resource that will help you, learn about yourself and heal if you're actually willing to do the work there is nothing better than let's just call them plant medicines mdma is by far the best place to start uh, for people because it's so gentle it's so safe it's so easy to use there's virtually no side effects like it's it's an amazing medicine i, I pretty much graduated from mdma it was amazing uh and then i i for the most part now i'm i'm on um I basically have just graduated pretty much from psilocybin and LSD. I was alternating with those LSD assisted psychotherapy and, and psilocybin assisted psychotherapy, which were both fantastic and did amazing stuff with me. The best combo actually was LSD and MDMA because uh, LSD just, it just opens you up and forces truth into your face. But MDMA is so soft in general, it helps you process it. That was, that's the best combo I've found. I would not recommend just jumping right into LSD and MDMA. Uh, That's, yeah, it's a little bit of the deep end, but for your second or third session, you can go very low dose uh, LSD, like 25 to 50 micrograms with obviously an experienced guide and therapist um, with you know 150 uh, uh, milligrams of MDMA. And that's a great combo and it works. That moved mountains for me. Uh, and then- Have you done ayahuasca? No, uh, I have not. Uh, I, I'm about to kind of graduate or to move into the, the higher medicines. I'm actually starting with 5-MAO DMT only because I've had a lot of people. I'm pretty lucky. I've got three like guides who really know their stuff. And two of the three are both like where you are in your progression. You've basically quote graduated from ayahuasca. Like it's a great medicine, but it was, it was never that appealing to me. Uh, I mean, I would really been willing to do it. It just wasn't. The, it, and, and, most of the work that I've done 
in um, mushrooms and LSD, it's the same stuff, you know? Yeah, um, I agree with you on that. The reason I was asking about Aya is because the combo that I have done in the past was mushrooms and ayahuasca, which was a really interesting experience. But I would say for me, LSD is, is the one that's like just clearest and cleanest. Yeah, I, it is. It is definitely clearest uh, and cleanest, but it's, um, they're all different and they all have great purposes. They're, it's again, it's like no one, no, a carpenter's not like, Oh, a hammer. That's the thing. You gotta <laughs> use a hammer. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Right. Hammers and saws and lathes and chisels. They're all they're all, Every tool has a purpose and all the medicines that I've used have all been very good for the purpose. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm going to do 5-MeO next, uh, next couple months. Uh, we'll see what that is. And then um, I'll probably do ayahuasca at some point just to do it, um, to try it. For, like, I, what, for the last two years, I, I, th- this has been a main focus of mine, is doing plant medicine therapies. And I, uh, the last one especially, I, it was pretty clear that I'd gotten through pretty much all the trauma. It's sort of like plant medicine works for two different things, I think, and uh, roughly speaking helping you deal with your trauma and your emotional issues, uh, and then helping you with, uh, let's say, enlightenment, mind expansion, right? And the two things overlap a little bit, but not a whole lot. And I, again, I was lucky. I had good guides who were like, look, dude, you have a lot of trauma and a lot of shit you need to work through. If you start in the, like, start with ayahuasca or start with the higher medicines, those are really difficult ways to work through trauma. <laughs> like, you can do it, but it is going to be painful and hard. And whereas if you start in the, 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 the more entry-level medicines, MDMA, lower-dose psilocybin, lower-dose LSD, you can work through the really dark, hard stuff that's sort of like yours. Then you can go into the mind expansion and enlightenment with the higher medicines without carrying all that baggage with you. And thank God I listened to them. Because, <laughs> man, like, it was hard. It was really hard. Uh, the work I've been doing, oh, God, it's been hard. I can't imagine, like... It's funny, like uh, some of them, uh, Dan Engel helps me a lot. And he was telling me stories about like, he started with ayahuasca and, and he does the stories he tells me about like, like, <laughs> the, like his first 10, 20 sessions or whatever. I'm just like, that sounds like the worst shit ever. He's like, it was, it was rough. It can <laughs> it was be very good. intense. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah. that's, that's awesome. And thank you for, for being so open about that. I know you and I've had conversation on that before and I'm all, I'm all about it. Tell me this. What are your, some of your beliefs? That's the B in herb. What are beliefs or worldviews? About what? You're, the way that you see the world, you know, belief, core beliefs that you hold. Oh, man. That, well, that has shifted radically over the last two years. Yeah, I know. Uh, two which years. is why I'm so interested to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, so I'll, I'll tell you, this was my first MDMA LSD session. This is where I saw this really clearly. This is going to sound like some woo-woo bullshit. I'm just going to tell you. Go. Uh, all right. Okay. I knew that, that we humans create our own reality. I knew that I understood that conceptually, right? You know, cause I'm in media and marketing and storytelling. So I get how, you know, you create worlds with story with, with, with worlds with words, right? And you create worlds with stories. And I really understood how literally I can tell a story in my head, put it somewhere else out to the world and bring resources and people to me. And I, I like all the, I get it. I, I, I got that. What I did not understand. So I understood like, like there's a metaphorical layer at which we create our own reality that I understood. Right. I think that we actually create our own reality almost totally and fractally in all dimensions. 
And, and I don't mean literally like I created this table with my mind, right. uh, but like, it was so funny the way the medicine showed this to me, man, because like I, I knew physics, I know uh, physics pretty well. I went to University of Chicago and I was like, uh, you know, uh, thinking about being an evolutionary biologist for a while. So I, and I won the physics award and chem award in my high school. So like, um, I understand physics decently well, like not enough to be like, you know, go work at the Hadron Collider, but enough. <laughs> right. And so, um, the medicine's like, dude, you understand what E equals MC squared is, right? I'm like, yeah, of course, right? Which is literally one of the defining uh, uh, sort of uh, discoveries of physics of the 20th century. Well, and then the medicine's like, well, if everything's energy, what does that actually mean? And then it kind of walked me through and I was like, oh, fuck, of course. And like, I, I saw, like it just took the pieces of knowledge I had about physics and put them together and it was like, Oh, of course <laughs> we're energetic beings having a physical experience. Of course, yep. uh, like I, I can't, I, I don't have the skill to transform this table into a dragon, but that is, that's only because I don't know how to do it. These, it, it energy, uh, it cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be, I mean, I go into the laws of thermodynamics. Of course it can happen. All the same There's stuff. A way to do it. Right. It's all the exact same stuff. And then like walking through all that, it was like, oh my God, it's right there. It's so obvious. Um, and what's so funny is like, uh, it's all there in physics. Like it's all, you don't, you, we, you don't, it didn't show me any magical, I've seen the machine elves that like Terrence McKenna talks about, but it wasn't, they weren't the ones giving me the secrets of the universe. It was like, it was either my own brain or the medicine or something, just putting together what I already knew. Yeah. And, and so like, once I understood that, that like we literally create our own reality, but fractally in all dimensions, then it's like, oh man, and so much stuff makes sense now. And so much, and it's like, it's like you take a step back and you're just like, oh my God, we're all just children playing dress up. There's a million sort of things from there that flow out of there. Um, but I'll tell you the other big thing that came, all clear as day. And again, I don't know if this is true or not. I feel like it's true and I now operate as if it's true and it has helped me radically. I think that, uh, well, okay, it's connected. Last thing I said, we're energetic beings having a physical experience. And it seems to me that the, that the reason we do this, and I, I, I don't have all the pieces. The reason we do this is um, because our energy can only transform and evolve in physical experience or something like that. Like this is the mode at which it best evolves or it needs to evolve, uh, uh, something like that. And then, then there's a choice that like the, the, the whole point of the Bible, right. Is that there's choice. Uh, that's the whole, uh, basis of Western civilization is free will is the fact that you have a choice on what you do. And I know like all these philosophers and going to listen to Nozicks and all, I know all of them try to tear that down, but at its core, um, it appears that we are energetic beings that choose our existence like we pick the life we're coming back into and i think we do it with other uh beings like we come back together to work on issues together i have um, no doubt about that I, I, it seems very true to me no uh, doubt I, I, about that i mean being married to sean our relationship was that on so many levels and that cat didn't even believe in that when i first met him but having experienced what we experienced over 10 years, I, I, I have no doubt about that. 
Yeah, it seems pretty clear to me. And so then the question for me becomes, if I picked this life, what is this here to teach me? And that's for literally basically everything in my life, right? Every argument I have, every problem I have, every obstacle I face, every whatever. And, and like, and once I started looking, seeing that, it was like, oh my God, I started seeing, really seeing the patterns in my life. It's like, I've been banging my head against this rock for 40 fucking years. What am I Making doing? Making it way harder than it needed to be. <laughs> Why am I doing that, right? Like just the other day, just the other day, you're probably going to laugh at this because you probably know this already, but I had like, it was the most stunning realization to me. And I wanted to throw up. It was so obvious. As soon as I thought or figured it out, I was like, ah, and so much of my life became clear. Anger is a way to negotiate for better treatment from the, the object of the anger. So if I'm mad at you, it's because I want you to treat me better. And anger is a tool, an effective tool to use to negotiate for better treatment. And as soon as I realized that, it was like, it was like a curtain was pulled back on a whole section of my life. And I was like, fuck, oh my God. And like, I haven't really been able to be angry since then. Because wow. every time I get angry, it's like, uh, who do, what, how do I want to be treated? What need do I have that's not being met? And then I like, you say, and then, so like, uh, so I mean, I, I, I could go on like this, you said like infinitely about this because like, um, yeah, my beliefs, I would say from, let's call it two years ago, there's very few beliefs that I have that have not completely shifted. And even though a lot, I would, there's a lot that are the same, but the underpinnings of them and how I reasoned myself in, or experience, it used to be reason my way, my way into them. Now I've experienced my way into them. So even if the beliefs are the I'd say 70% of my beliefs are different. The 30% are the same. Why I believe them is now totally different. That's awesome. I mean, because you can know something intellectually, but then once you've felt it, been it, experienced it, it's, totally it's different. A, a deeper presence. So that's awesome. And you and I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> However... If people are interested in you and what you're up to and want to learn more, where would you like them to go? Uh, probably tuckermax.com. That has like, especially if they want to know about plant medicine, I've got two articles there. Like uh, the first one is about the first two, my first two MDMA experiences, like everything I learned, what they were like. It's a long piece, but a bunch of people, like I mean, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have read that. Uh, and then I have another piece about why I like the evolution of my plant medicine journey, which medicines I took and why, because so many people were like, Oh, I want to start here and I want to do this. And I'm like, okay, look, let me here. Here's what I would recommend for most people without knowing you generally because and it's a strategy I took and I explained why that, that that's probably the best place to start. Uh, and then I got a bunch of other stuff there. If you want book stuff, go to scribewriting.com or we just released a whole like definitive course about how to write your book totally for free. Like no bullshit. Go to scribebookschool.com, you know, cause we're a services firm. And so like, I got so tired of all these clowns who aren't writers, just market or selling courses about how to write a book. I was yeah. like, as soon as the coronavirus hit, we were stuck at home. I was like, okay, we wrote the best book in existence on how to write a book. Let's just teach the whole book for free to the right. world. And so we had like 5,000 people on a webinar. I taught the whole thing. It's up for free. So anyone can go to that. You want to start your book. That's the place to start. Fantastic. I would also recommend that our listeners follow you on social media. You have a really interesting 
framework that you use called lessons I've learned, where you just talk about some of these experiences and just other things that you're realizing as you go through life. So I, I love reading those and found those really helpful. So highly recommend you all go check out Tucker Max. Tucker, you're awesome. And I always appreciate our time together where we can just dig in and, and talk real, real stuff. So thank you so much. I totally appreciate you being on the show. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Lucrative Society on iTunes. And please leave a review of the podcast. Visit lucra.com for transcripts and resources or to become a member of The Lucrative Society where I coach purpose-based entrepreneurs on business, mindset, and heartset. Lucra, where wealth equals well-being.